What if I told you that the modern world is hurting your mental health? That 24-hour access to food, social activities, and artificial light is impacting your mood. Although you might say, duh. Do we really know why this is the case? What is happening in our brains and how can we counteract it? For example, we've all experienced a late night snack after going out with friends, but research is discovering that not only what you eat, but also when you eat can make a significant impact on your mental health. So should we change our behaviors? In today's episode, we'll talk about how modern living is negatively impacting your circadian system and eating behaviors. We're going to touch on the neuroscience of eating rhythms, how they impact mood, and some of the clinical implications of this knowledge. We'll end off with a discussion of the sometimes controversial topic of intermittent fasting and some tools to help anyone looking to improve their eating rhythms, mood, and overall life. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. It's me again. For those who don't know me yet, my name is Ev, and I am your host for the season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's University, and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in central nervous system disorders. And today I'm talking with Elena again. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Elena, also a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's, and my research focuses on exploring eating behavior and circadian dysfunction and mood disorders, as well as novel tools for assessment and treatment. We've got a super trendy topic to discuss today, so I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, me too. Let's get right into it. In our last few episodes, We touched on how eating patterns can impact mental health, but we mainly focus on what we're eating, like certain diet styles and their impact on our gut microbiome, you know, that kind of stuff. But today we're switching from thinking about what we eat to when we eat and how modern society is jeopardizing our circadian health. Elena, can you start us off by framing this whole controversial take on society? What are we doing as humans that is so bad for our circadian system? And, you know, this is the nutritional psychiatry series, so specifically in relation to food. Yeah, so it's pretty clear that we live in a 24-hour world. So you can order Uber Eats at any time of day or night, you stay up late on the weekends and wake up early on the weekdays, and we're constantly being stimulated by electronics and social media. This is obviously not how our species has evolved to live. Our ancestors would get up with the sun and had to forage for food during the day, maybe sit around a fire or look up at the stars a bit before resting at night. In modern times, we've strayed from this way of living drastically. It's really normalized for humans to eat insanely calorically dense food as a midnight snack or have a super sugary coffee early in the morning and then sit at your desk all day. This is not how our biology is set up and as a result can contribute to numerous negative health effects or just lead us to live suboptimally, whether we realize it or not. So this is a really fascinating field related to our circadian clock system, the system that organizes our bodily processes according to the day-night cycle. And a lot of research is beginning to look at how disruptions in our circadian rhythms impact our health, including our sleeping rhythms, social rhythms, body temperature rhythms, you name it. But today we're going to focus on one main rhythm of the system and how it relates to mental health, and that's our eating rhythms. Yeah, it's pretty clear a modern society does not completely match with our evolution, and 
it's so odd to think that we have evolved as a society in order to improve our lifestyle, you know, and our health in general. Yet some of those innovations that we created to improve these aspects of our lives are actually becoming detrimental. And I'm curious, I know we're going to be talking about rhythms quite a bit today, and since this is a nutritional psychiatry episode, I'm assuming you're going to tell me there's a specific eating rhythm that's known to be optimal for mental health, right? Well, there is, but before we get into why the timing of meals can impact mental health and the optimal eating rhythms for humans, let's give some background on what eating rhythms are in the first place and then some of the emerging research on the topic. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I got a bit ahead of myself there. What can I say? I'm pretty excited about this topic. So when we say eating rhythms, we're basically referring to the timing in which we rhythmically consume food from day to day. A regular eating rhythm would be someone who eats at roughly the same time every day, while an irregular eating rhythm would be the opposite. So eating at different times from day to day or week to week. Pretty simple. A lot of us tend to eat pretty regularly throughout the week, but then our schedules change to the weekend. Mm -hmm. This immediately makes me think back to the undergrad days when you'd be attending class all week, and in my case, I was up really early every morning for figure skating practice, so I was eating breakfast right after that at like 8 a.m., and then by the time 7 p.m. hits, it was dinner and right to bed. But then when the weekend would roll around, it all goes out the window, and all of a sudden, you're up at 1 a.m. eating pizza. And this is something we call social jet lag, which I can explain more about later. Yeah, to be honest, I find it kind of funny that you mention that this is in your undergrad days. I feel like I still do this now. (laughs) (laughs) And I never really think about it too much. I just think, you know, well, at least I ate something. But I'm assuming you're going to tell me I should really schedule my meals a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, with this topic, I definitely do want to highlight early on that we aren't suggesting that you need to schedule all your meals and be super regimented about it. Life's all about balance and just doing your best. Mostly, I think the science behind it all is just so fascinating. And if anyone's looking for ways to improve their mental health and just work on being your best version, then it's worth learning about. And we'll explain it all for you in this episode. Mm, That's a good point. So getting right into the science of eating rhythms... When I think about the word rhythm, I automatically think of clocks, and I'm assuming in this context, it might have to do with one of our most well-known body clocks, like the circadian rhythm. I guess it's an important player in all of this. Can you talk a little bit about how the circadian rhythm works? Yeah, so essentially all organisms on Earth have evolved with a biological clock. This clock is a super important system in humans that controls most processes in your body according to the 24-hour day and night cycle. And it makes sense, the rising and setting of the sun is one of the only constants in life, so of course our bodies have adapted in response to that. And the central clock or pacemaker of this system is a small cluster of cells located in a brain area known as the hypothalamus, which is a little region called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which we'll call this region the SCN or the main clock. So the SCN receives direct input from the retina of the eye, so this is how light exposure can influence it. Light to the retina helps to entrain the circadian system and maintain its synchronization with the external light-dark cycle of the world. 
Interestingly, this is related to the pathway of melatonin secretion, which is a hormone produced by a brain area known as the pineal gland, and makes us feel tired or sleepy. When light enters your eye, melatonin production goes down and you don't feel tired, as opposed to when there's no light and melatonin increases. So in this way, light is a form of entrainment for the circadian system because it's affecting other rhythms in the body. I find this also fascinating, and I'm assuming that's one of the many reasons we all get told not to look at our phones before bed. You know, you mentioned entrainment, which I guess can mean a lot of different things, but can you clarify what that is in this specific context? Yeah, so entrainment refers to the circadian clock that uses information from external cues, for example, light. And it does this to synchronize itself properly. So entrainment ensures that internal circadian rhythms stay aligned with the 24-hour day, even in the absence of the external cues. Oh, that's pretty cool. And so once these inputs reach the SCN or the main clock, what happens from there? How do we go from an external cue like light to actual physiological changes in the body? Yeah, so the SCN contains individual cells with what we call intrinsic molecular oscillators, which are made of a set of interconnected proteins known as clock genes. And these genes regulate their own activity in a feedback loop, resulting in a rhythmic oscillation of protein levels over approximately 24 hours. The coordinated activity of these intrinsic molecular oscillators in the SCN is responsible for generating and maintaining a range of circadian rhythms. And what's super cool about this too is that there are many genes that are regulated by these clock genes that you mentioned, and they can affect so much more than just sleep. You know, we know that they play a role in the immune system, in the cardiovascular system, etc. So they're actually very important for our overall health. And I'm curious, in the context of our eating habits, how does it come into play? Does it really help entrain the system? Yeah, exactly. So eating behavior is regulated in part by the circadian clock system through a bi-directional relationship. So although the SCN is the main clock, we also have other clocks all over our body. So yeah, just like you said, pretty much every system of the body is related to the circadian clock in one way or another. So the SCN receives information not only from the retina, but also from various other brain regions like the thalamus and the brainstem. And these inputs can modulate the circadian rhythm, allowing it to be influenced by factors other than light, so like temperature, feeding behavior, and social cues. The communication also goes the other way, so the SCN talks with other brain regions and peripheral tissues through neural and hormonal pathways to coordinate various physiological processes across the body. And this can include things like regulating the sleep-wake cycle, hormone secretion, body temperature, metabolism, and cognitive functions. Although light is one of the strongest cues for the SCN in the brain, the timing of food intake is arguably the strongest entrainment cue for the peripheral clocks, like the ones in the digestive system. Mm. So your digestive tissues, like your liver and intestines, actually demonstrate a circadian rhythm in their digestive and metabolic capacity. So essentially, they're better at digesting food and using energy at certain times of day. 
And interestingly, circadian rhythmicity is also observed in the contents of the gut microbiome. Those microbes in your gut that we talked about in the last episode actually change regularly over the course of the day in a rhythmic manner. And this is just all hinting at reasons why eating at different times of day can have different impacts on your body. Yeah, that's really interesting that your gut microbiome just changes throughout the day. I'm curious, like, what is the purpose of all of this? I understand that, you know, the body is trying to synchronize all of these processes. And this is the goal of the circadian system. but why? Well, it's thought that the body synchronizes all these processes because it allows for the most optimal functioning of the body. So it's timing all of these processes to occur when they make the most sense. And importantly, a lot of systems in the body could interfere with other processes. So the circadian system makes sure that if two processes might occur and interfere with each other, to make sure that they occur at different times of day. So basically it works hard to maintain the delicate balance between all of this to ultimately enhance the survival of the organism. It's pretty incredible if you think about it. Yeah, the body's just very well made, you know, just trying to keep us alive as best (laughs) as it can. (laughs) It's kind of crazy to me though, that, you know, we don't talk much about how our actions affect our body's rhythmicity. But then again, it seems like such an abstract and such a complicated concept. I totally agree. And although it's a super complex system, the things we can do to help maintain a healthy circadian system and overall health are actually quite simple. And we'll get into those very soon. There are so many things we can do to help maintain this balance that your body is working so hard to protect. Right. So I guess we should start off by talking about the neuroscience underlying this all. Do we know what brain regions and hormones are responsible? for how eating rhythms work? Well, it's a highly evolved system, so we can't really isolate it to a single area or hormone. They all kind of work together to maintain balance in the body. But there are a few things that come to mind when talking about eating rhythms. So the hypothalamus, that region I mentioned earlier, is a crucial brain region involved in the regulation of feeding behavior. And inside the hypothalamus, these smaller regions known as the arcuate nucleus and the paraventricular nucleus play essential roles in integrating signals related to hunger, satiety, and energy balance for the rest of the brain and body. And these regions receive input from the circadian clock system and the peripheral tissues, integrating all these signals to coordinate feeding behavior with the appropriate circadian phase. And this is part of the reason why you tend to feel hungry at certain times of day. Or if you're the type that gets up and doesn't have breakfast right away, for example, then eating an early meal right when you wake up just feels wrong. I'm this way, and if I eat first thing in the morning, I actually feel super nauseous. Mm. So this is because all of those rhythms in your digestion and hunger hormones that I just mentioned weren't ready to eat that early. There are also circadian clock genes in the SCN, that main clock of the hypothalamus. And these clock genes and their protein products oscillate over a 24-hour period and influence the expression of genes related to metabolism and feeding behavior. The outputs of the SCN can regulate the expression of clock genes in other brain regions which are involved in eating rhythms. Mm. It's really fascinating to me that you talk about feeling nausea when you eat right when you wake up in the morning. I've heard so many people mention that. But I've never personally had that problem. Like, I'm one of those people that just wakes up and just eats. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually wondering, too, you know, you mentioned earlier that there were many rhythms in the body. And 
I'm assuming they're not all regulated by the central pacemaker or the SCN. Is there anything in the rest of the body that's important for all of this? Totally. So in addition to the central clock and the SCN, peripheral tissues throughout the body also have their own circadian clocks. And these peripheral tissues are synchronized with the central clock and respond to various signals, those associated with feeding and the fasting periods. For example, ghrelin is a hormone produced in the stomach that stimulates appetite. Its levels typically increase before meals and decrease after eating. And the secretion of ghrelin follows the circadian rhythm, with levels peaking during the usual mealtime. The circadian regulation of ghrelin is thought to be influenced by both these central and peripheral clocks. And leptin is another hormone produced by fat cells that plays a role in regulating appetite and energy balance. And this hormone typically rises as fat stores increase and suppresses appetite. And like ghrelin, leptin secretion is also involved in circadian regulation. There are also rhythms in insulin signaling, a hormone directly involved in glucose metabolism. And the circadian system works to restrain insulin secretion during sleep and optimize insulin production and release during the day when food is typically being consumed. So these are just a few of many hormones which play a role in rhythms of hunger and satiety. Hmm. That's so interesting that, you know, we have this central pacemaker and then we also have all these peripheral clocks that are just trying to regulate how hungry we feel at like certain times of the day when when we're awake and when we normally would eat and, you know, is also regulating the timing at which our body actually receives the energy from the food we've consumed. You also mentioned earlier that this relationship between, you know, hormones and the SCN and our behaviors is bilateral. So I'm curious then how eating behaviors can potentially influence the SCN and those peripheral clocks. Yeah, so like I mentioned, another synchronizer between the SCN and peripheral clocks is the timing of meals, which, like you said, can bidirectionally influence the circadian regulation of feeding behavior and the signaling of those hormones I mentioned. So regular meal times and consistent patterns of feeding can help entrain the circadian clock and improve metabolic health. Interesting side note, if you're ever traveling across time zones and have to deal with jet lag, Aligning your meal times to the new time zone is actually a great way to help acclimate yourself faster, since your peripheral clocks in your digestive system impact that main clock in your brain. And my big question here, too, is what happens when your eating rhythms are irregular all the time? I imagine this isn't great for your circadian system, but just how bad is it? Yeah, so it isn't that great. So when we have these irregular meal times, for example, eating pizza at 1am, like I mentioned earlier, or really eating at any point during the nighttime, our bodily processes are naturally geared towards rest and recovery at this time. So these behaviors can disrupt the circadian regulation of appetite metabolism, leading to desynchronization with other circadian rhythms too. Right. And what are some of the other factors that could influence eating rhythms beside when we decide to eat? Well, there's also other external cues like the availability of food and the light-dark cycle, which also influence eating rhythms. The circadian system integrates these cues to prepare the body for feeding during the active phase and fasting during the rest phase. That's super interesting to me that our body just kind of prepares for what it expects to happen. It's amazing to me that this even evolved in the first place. 
Right. Like I mentioned, the system evolved to optimize the timing in which energetic processes occur to fulfill an organism's energy needs, which do oscillate across the day-night cycle. So typically people expend more energy during the day and rest at night. So the circadian system prioritizes energetic processes like digestion, efficient energy use, etc. in the daytime, and then prioritizes the storage of energy and recovery of the tissues at night. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, with such an evolved system, it makes me wonder just how detrimental disruptions to these rhythms can actually be, you know, especially considering almost every process in the body is intertwined with the circadian rhythm in one way or another. Yeah, so disruptions to the circadian clock system, like what happens with shift work or jet lag or certain sleep disorders, can lead to desynchronization between these internal timekeeping mechanisms and external cues, which can result in various health issues, including sleep disturbance, mood changes, impaired cognitive function, and metabolic disorders, which we'll go into in the context of eating behavior. The timing of meals is a really important peripheral cue for the circadian system, influencing so many processes like we've mentioned. And then adjusting these regular meal times can reset peripheral clocks, placing them out of sync with the main clock in the SCN. In fact, a disorganized eating pattern is related to a higher risk of obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and even some forms of cancer. Right, but why is this? What is responsible for the relationship between eating rhythm disruption And all these health conditions that you're talking about. Although we don't really know the exact mechanisms underlying these effects, research does indicate that meal timing and the physiological processes of the circadian cycle might be interacting to influence how metabolic systems respond to meals differently over the 24-hour day. So like I mentioned, your body's primed to receive food at certain times of day and not as ready at other times. Studies have also shown that irregular meal timing is associated with disturbed oscillations in metabolic genes, as well as altered appetite regulating hormones and maladaptive feeding behaviors. So this could all be how eating rhythms influence body weight and energy metabolism, even when the same amount of food is consumed because processes of energy balance in the body generally don't promote expenditure during the night hours and therefore the calories that you consume at night are more likely to be stored as fat. For example, human subjects who consumed a high-calorie breakfast showed reduced weight gain, adipose tissue, fasting glucose, and other measures compared to subjects who consumed a high-calorie dinner late in the evening, and late in the evening is when your melatonin levels are highest. Mm There was also a cross-sectional study of college-aged people that demonstrated participants who consumed most of their calories closer to the onset of melatonin secretion at night had more body fat than individuals who consumed most of their calories in the day. And I mentioned that the study is cross-sectional to highlight that the data was collected at one time point, so it's indicating a correlation here, not causation. And similarly, eating, irregular eating times associated with shift work have been repeatedly linked to obesity, abnormal insulin functioning, and metabolic syndrome in the literature. And this relationship also goes the other way. So food intake patterns also influence the circadian system. For example, diet-induced obesity or diets that are high in fat increases eating in the resting phase, as well as disturbed clock gene function and altered hormone rhythms. And this has been shown in both animal and human studies. 
It's interesting, too, that weight gain and increased risk of cardiometabolic diseases has been observed regardless of overall food intake when the eating patterns are out of sync with the SCN or the main clock. So basically, regardless of what you're eating, the timing of the meal itself can increase the risk for all these negative health effects. Right. So lots of negative effects Lots here. of negative <laughs> bad see. things. I see. And I'm curious, you know, do we know if all these negative effects you mentioned are reversed when you know we start having a good eating routine that's put black in place or well rodent studies have demonstrated that restoring meal timing during the active phase improves metabolic abnormalities associated with jet lag and it also reduces obesity so it indicates a protective effective routine feeding so yeah okay so that's a good start pretty convincing on the metabolic aspect but you know the main focus of this episode is to talk about mental health This is the nutritional psychiatry series after all. Can you talk a little bit about how circadian rhythm disruptions can have impacts on mental health specifically? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, there's evidence that circadian desynchronization in general is linked with poor mental health outcomes. So data shown that irregular eating is associated with mood disorders. For example, skipping meals or delaying breakfast, it's associated with depression, and only eating one meal a day is associated with bipolar disorder. Mm. Another study found a positive relationship between the irregularity of eating and the severity of mood symptoms, including a strong correlation between irregular eating and the length of manic symptoms in bipolar patients. So not only is irregular eating patterns associated with poor mood, but it also scales in severity kind of like a dose-dependent response, which is pretty compelling evidence. Although it's also important to mention that these are pretty small studies and, again, correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't ignore also the socioeconomic aspects of eating. You know, mm-hmm. like sometimes irregular eating patterns can also be due to, unfortunately, like poverty, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned a bunch of different symptoms and a bunch of different disorders here. And I'm wondering, do you mean that all of these symptoms are actually related to eating late at night or just at different times from day to day? Well, both will negatively impact the circadian system. But it's known that evening preference is common in people with bipolar disorder and is a risk factor for the development of depression. And when I say evening preference, I'm referring to something known as chronotype or the tendency to be a morning or an evening person. So being an evening person or evening preference in these patients makes them more likely to eat during the night. In fact, mood disorders often co-occur with a condition known as nocturnal eating syndrome, which is basically characterized by reduced feeding during the day and increased feeding at night. And depressed mood is also characteristic of nocturnal eating syndrome, especially in the evening. And this disorder often involves even nocturnal awakening with conscious episodes of compulsive food intake. So nocturnal eating syndrome is more prevalent in bipolar than in the general population. And individuals with both of these diagnoses demonstrate more anxiety and worse sleep behavior than one individual with just one. So eating at night is associated with negative mood symptoms, but also eating irregularly from day to day both behaviors are not optimal for the circadian system. Right. And I imagine there's also this social component there too, where if you're eating late at night, you might also be eating alone. You know, in some cases where there may be 
shame associated with eating, eating alone at night might be a more appealing alternative for some people. For sure. Eating alone is actually strongly associated with irregular meal timing and mood disorders. It's been proposed that the effects of altered mood states on social activity may actually be one of the main reasons for impaired timing of food intake. Right. That's really interesting. And from what you're saying, food impacts our mood, but mood also impacts food. Do we have some theories as to why people with mood issues eat irregularly? It could also be due to altered neuroendocrine signaling. So it's been suggested that altered hunger and satiety signals may cause disordered meal timing, as these signals interact with the circadian system. Also, it's important to note that your brain is highly influenced by changes in energy regulation. It actually uses 25% of your total energy at any given time, even though it's a relatively small part of the body. So if there's any abrupt changes in energy from food, then it can really impact the brain. There's also substantial overlap in brain circuits which control eating behavior and mood. So digestive hormones actually exert effects on dopamine, a hormone which is known to have altered levels in depression and bipolar disorder. People with mood disorders actually exhibit disturbed eating rhythms pretty frequently compared to the general population, so it might be important to the underlying mechanisms of the disorder. Ultimately, though, it's still a field under investigation, and there is so much more to learn here. And from what I know, this is pretty closely related to your research. I know I always get you to introduce yourself for our new listeners, but now what I want to know from you is how this whole episode is actually related to your research. If you can give me like a two-minute explanation of your research project, how would you describe it? For sure. So I'm studying the role of desynchronized eating behaviors in mood disorders, specifically bipolar disorder. So there's this theory that irregular eating rhythms contribute to and also are a result of something known as metabolic jet lag, which is essentially a state of shifted circadian patterns of energy regulation that might be contributing to the underlying mechanisms of bipolar disorders. Individuals with bipolar, like I mentioned earlier, routinely display irregular eating rhythms when compared to the general population. And there's some evidence that the more the eating rhythms are disrupted, the worse the patient's symptoms are as well. But this isn't really a part of standard healthcare at all. So we're investigating ways to assess eating rhythm disruption and see how it relates to illness severity. And we're doing this with something known as ecological momentary assessment, which basically just involves taking repeated measurements over time in the participant's natural environment through their mobile devices. And this helps overcome a lot of the limitations of standard clinical assessments, which are usually retrospective and depend a lot on human memory, which we know can be flawed. Mm -hmm. So by collecting data over time, we get more temporal resolution in the data and can capture eating rhythms better that way. So we're conducting a study where we do this type of monitoring in patients with bipolar disorder while collecting clinical data on their illness severity in order to see what the relationship is between the two things. So the idea is that hopefully this type of monitoring will be incorporated into research and clinical care more and more over the years to increase the precision and individuality of assessments. It can also be used to implement new treatment approaches which consider the circadian system in psychiatry. So things like time-restricted eating or other interventions, ultimately to hopefully improve quality of life and reduce suffering in these patients. What a great goal. And 
you know, your research is just so interesting. <laughs> I'm curious, are you still accepting patients or I guess participants for your study or is the recruitment all done? We're done recruiting for the study now. So I'm in the middle of analyzing the data and preparing it for publication. I won't spill any of the details about what I found yet, but I'll be sure to share the study once it's published. I really look forward to seeing the results that come out of your study. It seems like it could be very important for building on the holistic and, you know, the comprehensive model of mental health care that we love to comment on because we all know it isn't perfect as is. It's getting better, but it isn't perfect. You know, eating is such an essential part of human life. It only seems natural that it should be taken into consideration a lot more than it is in the context of mental health care. And now that we know the importance of maintaining healthy eating rhythms, I think it would be useful to go over some emerging interventions and some tools for people either struggling with their mental health, you know, their eating rhythms, or just interested in the topic in general. So what kind of interventions are currently being developed to target the issue of irregular eating rhythms? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, Eating rhythm assessment is not currently part of standard mental health care, but there are quite a few different strategies that are being studied for restoring healthy eating rhythms and therefore good mental health. For example, bright light therapy is being studied for mental disorders associated with circadian rhythm dysfunction and basically just involves the delivery of artificial light to the retina in order to gradually shift circadian patterns back to the desired phase. And... This works mainly through the pathway I described at the beginning of this conversation, which involves neurons that go from the retina to the SCN. But if this works to shift the circadian system, then it would likely also help to regulate eating rhythms. Although I don't know of any studies that are specifically looking into this at the moment. One similar therapy is social rhythm therapy, which involves the stabilization of circadian rhythms by modulating the timing of behaviors such as social activities and life events. Again, this would help to regularize meal timing and eating rhythms and has proven useful in patients with bipolar disorder in quite a few studies. So both bright light therapy and social rhythm therapy have demonstrated to be effective in improving mood symptoms in people with mental illness. So there's potential for it to be a useful treatment for irregular eating rhythms too. That's really cool. And I imagine, you know, just working on adjusting your eating window could also be helpful, maybe similar to the concept of intermittent fasting. Are there any interventions like this with evidence? Yeah, so time-restricted eating has also demonstrated benefit for the circadian desynchronized eating behavior. So this one is defined as the strict separation of feeding and fasting windows. So food intake is limited to a particular window of time during the active phase, usually like a 4 to 12 hours during the day. So this could look like choosing to eat all your meals in a 10-hour window from, let's say, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Then the individual would be fasting from 7 p.m. to 9 a.m. the next day, allowing the body to synchronize to this consistent eating schedule. As a form of intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating has gained a lot of attention in social media, and there's a lot of talk out there around the subject as a weight loss technique. But for this discussion, I want to emphasize that we are talking about it for the goal of keeping eating rhythms consistent and therefore hopefully limiting negative effects of night eating and irregular meal timing, which interestingly is one way it might help with appetite control and weight loss. Mm. For example, one study showed that time-restricted eating was sufficient to prevent obesity even without affecting total caloric intake because the food intake was restricted to the day. 
Yeah, that's really interesting that caloric intake wasn't affected at all either, and yet was still preventing obesity in these people. And I'm curious, you know, what's going on for this to be an effective intervention for mood specifically? Yeah, so although emerging evidence suggests that time-restricted eating may improve eating rhythms and negative mood, more work is definitely needed to identify the underlying mechanisms for this relationship. One study found that elevated adiponectin levels while fasting are associated with a reduced risk of adverse cardiovascular effects and might mediate the positive effects of calorie restriction or intermittent fasting for metabolic health. In addition, fasting promotes the production of ketone bodies, which have been linked to improved energy metabolism and neuroprotection. Time-restricted eating also promotes positive mood through the actions of neurotrophic factors, cytokines, and neuroendocrine signaling. And time-restricted eating has also been shown to prevent depressive and anxiety symptoms in animal studies that are designed to model shift work. But also in human studies, this intervention has been shown to have an antidepressant effect. So despite all these lines of evidence, more work is needed to determine the underlying mechanisms responsible for improved mood symptoms following a time-restricted eating regimen. What an important topic that I really think is useful for everyone to know a little bit about at least. Absolutely. Understanding the neuroscience of eating rhythms is important for addressing issues related to eating behavior and mental health. And disruptions to the circadian regulation of feeding, such as irregular eating schedules or eating during the night, have been associated with an increased risk of so many different disorders and mental health problems. By considering the interaction between the central and peripheral clocks, as well as hormone signals, researchers hope to develop strategies for promoting healthy eating rhythms and overall well-being. And do you have any tips for those of us that maybe don't struggle so much with mental health, but just want to maintain healthy eating rhythms and live our best synchronized life? Totally. So... Eating on a regular schedule is so beneficial, not just for mental health, but also to reduce the risk of things like obesity and those other disorders I mentioned earlier. It also just feels good to have a routine, especially when we live in such a 24-hour society filled with artificial light and access to food at literally any moment. So some things I recommend to listeners is to first eat well-balanced meals filled with complex carbs, quality proteins, healthy fats, and micronutrients. And this will help avoid the feeling of hunger and snackiness outside of our regular eating window. I would also say try not to eat too close to going to bed. This is when your melatonin levels start to rise and your body is preparing for the rest phase. So it'll be less efficient at using energy at this time and is more focused on storing it. Also just consistency from day to day. Try if you can to eat at regular times and then also keep regularity in your other rhythms as well. So trying to go to bed and wake up at roughly the same time from day to day. Try being up to watch the sunrise. This is actually so good for your internal clock and mood. And even exercising or going for a walk at a similar time each day can help synchronize your rhythms. Above all, just aiming for consistency in your routine, but not worrying about it too, too much. It won't kill you to stay up late or have a snack outside of the recommended eating window. It's all about balance and making the healthy habits be the routine in your life, while still making room for spontaneity and indulgence here and there. We're also different, so one person's optimal routine is going to be very different from someone else's. So also try not to get too caught up in comparison. Super useful tips and, you know, I know I'll be trying better to keep those in mind. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Thank you so much for sitting down with me today for this super interesting conversation. I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. 
This episode was kindly sponsored by the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. The CNS serves as a hub for research and teaching aimed at improving our understanding of the brain, how it works, and how new therapies and diagnoses can play an important role in the prevention and treatment of diseases and conditions affecting brain health. Top students from across North America and beyond come to the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University to learn in a collaborative environment from the best minds in the field. Our objective is to produce highly trained graduates who will continue our efforts to be on the leading edge of new discoveries. If you would like to sponsor a future episode of Think Twice, you can always reach out to us by email. If you would like to contribute financially to help us continue to produce high-quality, evidence-based episodes, you can also check out our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee pages linked in the episode description and found in our link tree in our Instagram bio. These are both easy-to-use platforms where you can donate to our initiative. No matter how much or how little you decide to share with us, we really appreciate your generosity. If you can't contribute financially and you're a part of the Queen's University community, feel free to reach out and volunteer with us. Also, if you're currently researching the brain and would like to share your research with us, feel free to reach out. We're always looking for students who are passionate about science translation and evidence-based content creation to join our team. No previous podcast experience necessary. Also, if you like our podcasts, please, please, please share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with at least one person you think would enjoy our episodes too. Also, if you want to reach out to us, you can DM us on our social media or just shoot us an email at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. On that note, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice and see you next time.